Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. If you like today's show, please take a moment to rate and review and do all the good things. Thanks for listening. Let's dive in. It was going to be a big year for Aurora Martin and Mark Van Beers. They had just been married and were making plans for a future together. But first, they had a honeymoon to celebrate. They'd met less than a year ago, and Mark thought Aurora was his dream come true. He was working as a very successful accountant for a well-known financial services firm at the time, and he was doing very well on the work front, but he hadn't made much time for personal relationships. Mark was a Belgian businessman who lived in Brussels, and most of his friends were his co-workers. His social life was pretty much non-existent. For the most part, this was okay with Mark. He was an introverted person and didn't feel comfortable meeting women at nightclubs or bars. His circle of family and friends were beginning to wonder if he'd be single forever. He was approaching his forties, and he had decided he wanted a family. He came from a large, close family and knew that was something he wanted in his own life. He decided to use the services of a matchmaking company. This was in the early nineties, and matchmaking happened primarily through videotapes, questionnaires, and pictures. It certainly wasn't as accepted or trendy as it is now. Mark was honest and upfront about what he was looking for. He wanted a long-term relationship. He wanted a woman who was ready to start a family, settle down, and become his wife and a mother. If he were dating today, he definitely wouldn't have used the Grindr app. The matchmaking happened quickly for Mark, and he was pleasantly surprised when he was matched with a young woman named Aurora Martin. Okay, he was more than pleasantly surprised. He was thrilled because he matched up with a beautiful, aspiring actress. He fell for her like his heart was a mafia snitch, and she was the East River. Where Mark was quiet, intellectual, introverted, and of average looks, maybe a little on the heavier side and in his early thirties, Aurora was a pretty, slender blonde who was ten years younger, athletic, and extremely outgoing. According to her dating profile, she was looking for someone who had financial means— owned their home, and her preference was for someone who was not overweight. Mark was really nervous about their first date. He had seen a picture of Aurora and watched her video. He thought she was gorgeous, and he really hoped she would like him. When they finally met, he found out he didn't need to worry. Aurora was friendly, kind, and intelligent. They had a lot to talk about. She told him that she came from a big family as well and that she wanted to have one herself. She told Mark she'd earned a degree from Eastburg University. Mark was impressed with her education, but she told him that it was done mostly to satisfy her family. Sadly, her parents had passed away, but they had left her and her siblings with a significant amount of money. She was living on that money while she pursued her career as an actress. Mark was infatuated with Aurora from their first meeting, and she returned his feelings. It was a clear case of opposites attracting. Mark's extended family were skeptical of the relationship at first, but they saw how happy Aurora made Mark, and they opened their arms for her and made her feel like part of the family. For her part, Aurora introduced Mark to a more glamorous lifestyle than he was used to, and he felt at peace in her company. After seeing each other for only six months, Mark proposed. They got down to business and planned their marriage on March 11, 1995, just one year after they met. They would marry in Brussels, where Mark's family lived. His large, extended family happily attended the wedding. But this was a stark difference from Aurora's side of the aisle. She'd only invited her sister. 
If Mark's family found this strange, they kept their mouths shut. The newlyweds didn't leave for their honeymoon right away, but three months later they had one planned, and it was going to be amazing. They had chosen to honeymoon on the French island of Corsica. It's the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean and is renowned for its gorgeous landscapes. Beautiful stone villages dot the mountainsides. Between the villages, winding roads lead to hidden coves and sandy beaches. Along the coast, the roads run along red cliffs that plunge into turquoise waters. The first week of May in 1995, the newlyweds checked into their hotel in Calvi to begin a romantic week. During the days, they sunbathed and soaked in the scenery while walking the cobblestone streets and enjoying the local cuisine. Their nights, well, they probably did more screwing than Black and Decker. Their actions were probably pretty typical of honeymooners. That is, until the night of May 10th. That evening, they planned a romantic dinner and then a drive up the mountainside to the Notre Dame de la Serra. It's the location of a beautiful old church with a sculpture of the Virgin Mary. The view from the church is breathtaking. Maybe they chose that location because an old local legend says that if you bring the love of your life there, you'll spend many happy years together. This legend couldn't have been more wrong. After enjoying the sunset, the newlyweds descended in the dark down the winding roads back toward their hotel. The road zigged and zagged. In some places, one side was a mountain rising steeply upwards, and on the other side, a cliff face falling steeply into the ocean. The roads were a challenge in the daytime, let alone at night, as a tourist and after a drink or two. On the way back to the hotel, Mark lost control of the car and drove over a cliff plummeting to the rocky beach below. At 1 a.m. on March 11th, a parachute regiment maneuvering on the coast called police telling them of a road accident. They saw a Nissan that had just rolled off a cliff. When police arrived on the scene, Aurora Martin is found unscathed, or almost unscathed. She is, however, completely hysterical. She kept yelling for the police to go find her husband. She explained that on the way home they took the wrong road. When Mark realized, he tried to turn the car around but misjudged the distance. The car tipped over the edge and rolled down a bit of a hill before falling off the cliffside. Aurora was able to open her door and escape, but Mark couldn't. She explained this was because she hadn't been wearing her seatbelt, while Mark had been. While she's explaining the story, she's hysterical and almost incoherent. Emergency workers gave her a Valium to calm her down, and they asked her to explain once more what happened to her. This time, she gave a slightly different version to the one she had first said. She said an animal ran out into the road, and Mark swerved to avoid hitting it. Mark was in the car as it fell over the edge, but she managed to get out. She immediately climbed down the 140-meter or 450-foot cliff face to look for her husband. She found him. He was inside the car, but he was unresponsive. At that point, she decided what she needed to do was drag him to the edge of the water. There were two different reasons for this. One was to rinse some of the blood off so she could see what was wrong with him and if he was alive. The second was that she drug his body to the water's edge to get him away from the car in case it was leaking gas. She was worried about an explosion. Regardless, his body ended up near the shoreline. She wasn't able to revive him, so she climbed back up the cliff to go to the road and find help. First responders had a hard time making sense of her story. 
When they had arrived and Aurora was shouting for them to go find Mark, they tried to climb down the cliff, but they found it to be impossible without proper equipment. They couldn't believe that she had been able to climb down unassisted in the dark, especially because she wasn't wearing any shoes and she had no cuts on her feet. The terrain here was extremely rugged, and they believed her feet would have been cut up and bruised. She was still agitated and difficult to communicate with, so first responders took her away in an ambulance to be treated for shock and other minor injuries. While she was in the hospital, the authorities were supplied with climbing equipment, and they worked their way down the cliff to where Mark's rental car would be found. It was lying on its roof. When they searched the scene, they saw the driver's seat was covered in blood and brain matter, and there was a trail of blood droplets to the water's edge, but there was no sign of Mark's body. It wasn't there. When the sun began to peak over the horizon, police divers entered the ocean, and five hours later, they would recover Mark's severely damaged body. It was about 50 meters from the smashed vehicle. Most of the injuries were to Mark's head and face. He was unrecognizable. A couple days later, Aurora would arrive back in Belgium with Mark's body. The Corsican authorities had ruled his death an accident and prepared his remains to be shipped home. When Aurora landed back in Belgium, she was re-hospitalized as she was still suffering from shock. While she was recovering, Mark's family began making plans for his funeral. In the past, Mark and his family had discussed that they would be buried together in a plot they had bought years before. It was something Mark had agreed with his family about. Aurora, much to their surprise, disagreed with this plan. She insisted that Mark be cremated as soon as possible. She explained that while on their honeymoon they had discussed death, and he told her he'd prefer to be cremated. Aurora, as Mark's wife, technically was the one who should make the decision as to what would happen with Mark's body. But his family felt they had rank. They had known him longer, and they insisted he be buried. It was a strange point of contention, but the argument came to a close because, in Belgium, a person has to make a declaration to the local council if they wanted to be cremated. Mark had not done this, so Aurora's request was overruled and Mark was buried in the family plot. This argument had made Aurora angry, and she began to distance herself from Mark's family. At a time where she could have been leaning on them for support, she pushed them away. She wouldn't speak with them, and they wanted answers to questions about Mark's last moments and his death. Mark's family approached the Belgian police, asking for them to look into his death. However, without any substantial evidence, and the fact that the authorities in Corsica had already ruled it to be an accident, there wasn't anywhere for the investigation to go. The Van Beers family tried to reconnect with Aurora in the aftermath of Mark's death, but after the disagreement about his cremation, she seemed to want nothing to do with them. They wanted answers to their questions, and the woman who had witnessed his death wasn't being helpful. They were understandably hurt and frustrated. The depths of their frustration with Aurora would only continue to grow. This was because, while they were still looking for answers, Aurora began quietly selling Mark's possessions. Without discussing it with Mark's family, she sold his house for 120,000 euros. The family barely had time to blink before Aurora began spending Mark's money. They became even more concerned when, just as quickly, she went under the scalpel for a nose job. They wondered why she was so concerned with her appearance when she should be grieving the loss of her husband. Something wasn't right here. She wasn't acting like a grieving widow. 
Besides, if she'd fallen out of a vehicle and climbed up and down a cliff, wouldn't she have more injuries? The family kept pushing Belgian authorities to get involved, and because of these inconsistencies and their persistence, the Belgian police agreed to take a look at the case. They began asking questions beginning with Aurore. She told them the same story about the animal running out in front of the car. Her memories of that night had her sobbing, but even with the waterworks, the investigators felt like she wasn't being completely truthful. They felt like she was holding something back. When word got out that Mark's death was being investigated by Belgian authorities, a friend of Mark's came forward to the Van Beer family, saying that in the time leading up to the accident, Mark had shared with him some interesting information. He thought that maybe the information he had would be relevant to the case. Mark handled valuable clients with deep pockets, and according to Mark's friend, Mark had told him that one of the clients had some dubious dealings. His client wanted Mark to do something that Mark wasn't comfortable with, and Mark had the feeling that saying no wasn't an option. He felt like if he said no, he might have to be concerned for his own safety. Mark's family wondered if this information might be important, and did Aurora know something about it? Could Mark have been laundering money for someone? With this information, police decided to scour Mark's business records. They found nothing. He was clean, and the information led them nowhere. They spent several days working this angle, and their time had been wasted. However, during that same time, other officers would receive an official accident report from the Corsican authorities. The Corsicans had reevaluated the information they had and found Mark's death to once again be an accident. The only thing that was different was that they too found some of Aurora's actions to be strange, but they didn't have any new information. The couple had been on their honeymoon. She had escaped a plummeting car. She had seen Mark's corpse. Maybe it was all too much for her to process, and that's why she was acting weird. It was just an accident, and it was time for Aurora and Mark's family to move on. And that's what they tried to do. But a long wait at a doctor's office, and some dumb luck, would soon flip this case on its head. Mark's uncle was sitting in the waiting room of his doctor's office, reading a newspaper to pass the time. He read an article about a three-year-old case that sent shivers down his spine. The article was about an accident that was almost identical to Mark's. A young bride named Ursula Deschamps tragically died when her husband's car plunged into a canal near Mons in Belgium. In this case, the husband escaped the wreckage unharmed. He'd been unable to save his wife because he couldn't get her out of her seatbelt. The Van Beers family was looking for some kind of connection. They were hypersensitive to anything that might be pertinent to Mark's death. There was no obvious link between the two accidents, but they thought it was strange, and so they brought the article to the Belgian authorities' attention. One thing of interest was that the man involved in the accident still lived in Belgium. The authorities were very sensitive to the Van Beers family. They knew the family was hurting, and they still had the strange feeling that Aurora was holding something back, so they told the family they'd look into it. They discovered that Peter Schmidt was in the Army, and his 22-year-old wife was a college student. They had met in 1992 at a nightclub in Waterloo. Peter was a handsome man who, in my opinion, looked a little bit like a young Tom Cruise. Peter would always wear his military uniform with pride and looked impeccable. Ursula was a foreign language student and liked Peter's quirky nature. Her family liked him as well, and they thought the couple were a great match. Peter always had a smile on his face. He was a mover, a shaker, and loved sports. 
He didn't speak much French, and Ursula didn't speak German or English, but they made things work. They truly enjoyed each other's company, so much so they were virtually inseparable, and after four months, against her parents' advice, they got married. Both the bride and groom were 22 years old at the time. Soon after they wed, things changed between them, though. Ursula would complain to her sister that Peter was being mean to her. He was possessive and controlling. He would have violent outbursts when he was home, which, according to Ursula, was rare. She felt like she was being yelled at constantly. One day, as she was doing some deep cleaning, she found what looked like fake identification with Peter's picture on them and money in his dresser. It was a lot of money, more money than she thought he should have, and when she asked him about it, he exploded with anger. He began yelling, throwing things around the apartment. Ursula had to lock herself in the bathroom because she was so scared. The next day, Ursula reached out to her sister and told her she thought Peter might be involved in something illegal. She was spot on, because a week later, police would come knocking on her door. This happened when Peter wasn't home. They questioned her, asking if she knew whether Peter was involved in a car insurance scam. Between Peter's shady business dealings and his violent outbursts, Ursula decided it was time to leave the relationship. She told police about the money she had found in the apartment. Police then asked if she'd testify against him in court, and she agreed. About a month later, she gave a deposition against him, and two days after that is when the accident took place, the one in which Ursula died and Peter lived. Belgian police wanted to talk to Peter, but they couldn't find him. They asked Ursula's sister if she knew Peter's version of events on the day of the accident. She told police that Peter said he was helping Ursula learn to drive. He gave her a lesson, but he drove on the way home, and while he was driving, he was speeding, trying to read a map, and talking with her. While he was distracted, he lost control of the car and drove into the canal. Once the car was in the water and sinking, he was able to escape out the back window, but he couldn't get to Ursula. Police divers found the car the next day at the bottom of the canal, lying on its roof. There was no trace of Ursula. Her sister had been convinced that Ursula had survived and that she was hiding because she was afraid of Peter. Ursula was an excellent swimmer and could have made her way to safety. Unfortunately, this wasn't the case, and Ursula's body was found in the canal 800 yards from the car wreck. It took four days for police to find her body. Her cause of death was drowning. Soon after the accident, Ursula's family learned that Peter had taken out an insurance policy on Ursula's life just one month before her death. Her family had the feeling he had something to do with it. At the time of the accident, police had found it odd that two days before the accident she had testified against him. Now this man, who was soon to be her ex-husband, and who was known to have a terrible temper, is giving her driving lessons like they are best friends. They didn't buy this story about escaping the sinking car and swimming to safety. When they arrived at the scene, his clothes weren't even wet, and he didn't show any signs of trauma or sadness about losing his wife of only six months. Peter was charged with Ursula's murder. They took him to trial, and when they reenacted the accident, Peter wasn't able to show them how he escaped the canvassed rear window of the vehicle. He tried a couple times, but failed to get out, and couldn't explain why he was unable to get out on dry land when he had managed to do so from a submerged car. But Peter's defense team stood their ground, showing that Peter's seatbelt worked properly, while Ursula's had malfunctioned and she couldn't get out. The prosecution said, either way, it's Peter's fault, 
He lost control of the vehicle and killed Ursula. Sure, she died by drowning, but it was Peter's fault she was in the water. Peter's defense team had decided the best strategy for him was to plead guilty to involuntary manslaughter as part of a plea deal. He agreed and was only sentenced to three years probation. Three years. Peter, the justice defeater, was able to collect on an $800,000 insurance policy that Ursula had. He left the army and became a man of leisure. At the same time that Belgian police were looking into Ursula and Peter's case, they had sent an accident specialist to Corsica to investigate Mark and Aurora's accident further. The specialist spoke to first responders and the divers who recovered the vehicle after the accident, as well as witnesses who arrived at the scene. He found it very strange that this accident occurred on the only stretch of road that had no guard wall. If you look at a photo where the accident occurred, you would see what looks like a scenic overlook. In other words, there was space to pull a car over on the side of the road. If you got out of the car and you looked toward the ocean, you'd look down a steep sloping hill before you would see the cliff face. There was no guardrail there, and although it was only about 13 meters or 30 feet long, the investigator had to wonder how Mark hit that particular area. Not only that, but why would Mark steer the vehicle towards the precipice and not away from it? Most people would slam the brakes on, too, but there were no skid marks. The accident specialist found that Aurora Martin's version of events didn't match the evidence at the scene. If Mark swerved, as she said, the car would have landed in the water straight ahead of the curve, not at the bottom of the cliff, which was almost a 90-degree angle to the right. If Mark was driving at any speed at all, he couldn't have turned the car fast enough for it to end up where it did. There was another issue that concerned the investigator. If the vehicle was out of control and moving fairly quickly when the animal crossed its path, chances are the vehicle would have hit the berm at a fairly quick speed, which would have crushed bushes and shrubs and dug into the ground as it plowed forward. What the investigator found was that, yes, the shrubs and bushes were fairly flattened, but really pretty undisturbed. This indicated that the car was moving pretty slowly, as if pushed from a stopped position. The investigator also believed the passenger door couldn't have been opened while the car was moving. Rescuers from that night told the investigator about part of Ursula's story that bothered them. She had told them that she had dragged Mark's body from the car at the bottom of the cliff. She was small and skinny, while Mark was taller and heavier. He was 30 kilograms or more than 60 pounds heavier than she was. It would have been hard for her to drag him. Not only that, his body didn't show any signs that he was dragged over rocks. Instead, there was a trail of blood drops, like he'd been picked up and carried to the water's edge. There was absolutely no way Aurora could have picked him up, even in an adrenaline-fueled state. Aurora's story seemed to be falling apart. Based on this information, Belgian police decided three things. First, Aurora needed to be looked into further. Second, she couldn't have done it by herself. And third, Mark Van Beer's body needed to be autopsied. Detectives started by looking deeper into Aurora Martin's background and discovered that she had lied to Mark about her past. She wasn't a trust fund baby with a good education who had lost her family. Instead, she came from a broken home. She was raised by her grandparents because her mother was violent. As a teen, she lived with her emotionally abusive father 
She dropped out of high school at the age of 16 so she could party with her friends. To pay for her lifestyle and expensive tastes, she ended up working as a call girl. Police went back to Aurora to interview her further. But this time, instead of taking hours with them and answering all their questions patiently, Aurora was nervous and jittery and tried to push them out the door. Her excuse was that she had an audition to get to. Police found this to be suspicious. They asked her about her background, and she lied to them, just like she had lied to Mark. Maybe she was embarrassed by her background, or the fact she was a call girl for a while. But either way, she had lied to the police. The investigators, although they thought it was a stretch that the two accidents were related, decided it was time to ask Aurora if she happened to know a man named Peter Schmidt. Aurora's response was that she knew a lot of Peters, but no Peter Schmidt. The investigation continued, with police interviewing Aurora's family and friends. One friend told police that Aurora said she had wanted to find herself a rich husband so she could have a comfortable lifestyle, and that she seemed to have done that by marrying Mark. Aurora may have been a gold digger, but that's not a crime. Police decided to do a little excavating of their own, and what they dug through next were Aurora's financial records. Here, they hit the mother load. They found out that Aurora Martin had taken out seven life insurance policies on Mark in the months leading up to his death. The most recent policy, one for 250,000 euros, caught the investigators' attention. If Mark was to die from an accident, the payout on this clause would have doubled in value. It was weird, too, because the policy didn't declare that Mark had diabetes, and this was something that he had never tried to hide. Most damning was the fact that the signature on the policy didn't match Mark's. It was most likely forged. Now they had a motive. Investigators believed that the three-month time period between the marriage and the honeymoon was used by Aurora to convince Mark to take out the policies, one after another, after another, and so on. Around this same time, Aurora's stepmother came forward. She had recently split up with Aurora's father. She told police that Aurora had confessed to her that she had killed Mark for his life insurance money. Stepmom was also able to provide police with the name of a new man in Aurora's life. His name was Peter Schmidt. Yes, that Peter Schmidt, and he wasn't exactly new to Aurora. According to stepmother, the couple had planned the murder for over a year and executed it to perfection. Aurora had been proud of herself and felt as if she had pulled off the con of the century. It was really a good thing that Mark's family fought against Aurora's plan for cremation. Police were able to exhume him, and because his body had been shipped overseas, extra caution had been taken for hygiene reasons. His coffin had been lined with metal, and because of this, his body had been well-preserved, and the pathologist was able to collect vital forensic evidence. The autopsy would show that Mark had a massive injury to his skull. This injury was caused by a blunt instrument like a hammer or a rock. The wounds he had sustained during the crash had very little blood coming from them. This indicated that Mark was dead before the car fell over the cliff. Aurora and Peter were responsible for Mark's death. Police were able to trace the money from Mark's insurance policy payout to a bank account in Luxembourg. The account held the name of Aurora Martin with Peter Schmidt as co-signer. The investigators established that Peter and Aurora had actually met in 1991 when they took a rock climbing class together. This was long before Aurora met Mark Van Beers. 
The couple would meet again in February 1993 at a strip club where Aurora worked. The couple would enter into a passionate love affair. It seemed like what they had most in common was lust and greed. Aurora noticed that Peter was well off financially. In fact, he didn't seem to work at all, but he always had money. She was always attuned to financials and kept asking him how he was getting by. Eventually, he relented and confided in her that he had made some good decisions in the past, and they had paid off. He hinted at his wrongdoing, and Aurora became intrigued. At this point in the investigation, the theory was that Peter Schmidt had seduced Aurora Martin and convinced her to repeat the same life insurance fraud that he had committed with Ursula. Peter had grown from car insurance fraud to life insurance fraud. Of course, he couldn't pull off life insurance fraud again, it would be too obvious, but he could find someone that would. Police believed Peter was the brains and muscle of the plan, while Aurora was the beautiful pawn. They were on to her and felt like they had enough circumstantial evidence to make an arrest. They went to her house and were surprised to find someone else living there. Aurora had moved out the week before and had seemed to be in a rush to get out of Belgium. They went after Peter next, but he too was gone. Belgian authorities alerted Interpol, and an international warrant for their arrest was issued. Aurora and Peter had made their way to Miami, Florida. Peter had $500,000 from Ursula's life insurance, and Aurora had $1.3 million from Mark's life insurance and the sale of his house. They were living a lavish lifestyle while in Florida. They lived in a luxurious high-rise on Callens Avenue and dined at the best restaurants, Peter found work as a luxury car and boat salesman, and because of this they enjoyed parties on yachts and were served caviar and champagne. They made sure they were mixing with the people who had money in Miami's social scene. Maybe they were looking for their next victims. They were very careful and never used credit cards. They preferred to pay in cash, and this made it very difficult for police to track them down. But not impossible. Belgian police would learn of their whereabouts, and U.S. Marshals were given the urgent request to hunt the couple down. They did so, but yet again Peter and Aurora were a step ahead. By the time the U.S. Marshals found their apartment, the couple were gone. They had left in their yacht. What had tipped them off was an article in a French newspaper about Belgian police looking for them. It spooked them, and they decided it was time to move on. They fled to the Bahamas, where they lay low in Bimini for two months before returning to the U.S. They were running out of money, and they needed to go back to Miami to sell their belongings. The Miami police were able to track down their boat. It was ironically called to life. Police moved quickly, but once again they were too late. There was no sign of Peter or Aurora aboard the boat. They had just sold it to an unsuspecting sailor. Imagine his surprise when police came to raid his new yacht. Rumor has it, he asked the police to take their shoes off before entering the boat. The new owner said he had purchased the boat from Peter and Aurora for a very good price. He had paid cash, but he had come up a little short. He still owed Peter $50,000, and Peter had called several times, threatening to kill him if he didn't pay up. Police looked at the new owner's phone records and could see that Peter's calls were all made using payphones around the Miami airport. They staked out the phones used to call the man. They lucked out, and after a short chase, they caught Peter before he could get into his car and drive away. When he was arrested, he had a money belt with $50,000 cash on him. 
He wouldn't tell police where Aurora was, but said that when he didn't come back, she'd probably kill herself. Timing was vital now, so they searched Peter's car for clues. There they found a receipt from an auto repair shop. When contacted, the shop owner said that the couple who owned the car were subletting an apartment from him. Police raided the apartment and were able to get Aurora before she hurt herself. She didn't resist arrest. In fact, she told police she felt relieved that things were finally all over. She told police that Peter was the mastermind behind Mark's murder and that she had felt trapped in her relationship with him. She, too, had a money belt with $50,000 on her at the time of her arrest. The couple had been running for two years and had changed their appearance. Peter had been clean-cut, military-like in appearance, but now he had a bushy beard and long hair and wore glasses. Aurora had dyed her hair brown and, apparently in an effort to disguise herself, got breast implants. Oh, she wore glasses, too. Police thought they'd be able to get Aurora to crack. When she was questioned, she cried and said she couldn't remember details of Mark's accident and she couldn't explain why she left Belgium. Her excessive crying didn't fool the investigators. They knew she didn't want to answer because she wasn't sure what Peter was saying, and they didn't let up on her. Eventually, she chose to practice her right to remain silent. The couple remained in U.S. custody, trying every way they could think of to avoid extradition. Peter tried to slow the process down by making things as difficult as possible for authorities. The truth was, things were slow enough already. The U.S. authorities were hesitant to extradite the couple to Belgium for a crime that had been committed in Corsica, which is under French law. After a year of back and forth, 28-year-old Aurora Martin and 27-year-old Peter Schmidt were extradited to Belgium in 1998. There, in 2001, their trial would take place. It was based primarily on circumstantial evidence surrounding Aurora's actions and statements made after Mark's murder. One of Peter's friends would come forward stating that Peter had confessed to killing Ursula. This friend said that Peter told him the car went into the water and both he and Ursula escaped. Ursula instinctively went to Peter so they could climb out together. She had previously been certified as a lifeguard and her inclination was to help. When she reached Peter, he allegedly pushed her head under the water until she was no longer conscious. He then left her there and swam away. Before walking out onto the road to flag down a car for help, he rubbed his fingers on some strong menthol lozenges. He then rubbed his fingers on his eyes so it looked like he'd been crying. The facts of Peter's previous case couldn't be used in court because, according to Belgian law, a person can't be tried for the same crime twice. He'd already served his sentence for Ursula's death and had taken his punishment as lenient as it was. It was Aurora's stepmother's statement that tied Peter to the case, and really, that was all. But the prosecution felt like it was enough to charge him. According to the stepmother's statement, Aurora went so far as to say that she and Peter had done better by killing Mark than by killing Ursula. They both pled not guilty. The prosecution argued that, although Peter was the mastermind of the murder plot, Aurora was more than willing as an accomplice. She gladly targeted Mark with the sole intention of committing life insurance fraud. She willingly separated herself from Peter during this time and kept their relationship hidden. She knew exactly how her relationship with Mark was going to end. Police believed that what happened that night in Corsica was as follows. Mark and Aurora were out on a scenic drive when she asked him to pull the car over because she wasn't feeling well. 
She got out of the car, pretending to throw up, and Mark got out to help care for her. At this point, a second car pulled up with Peter inside it. He launched an attack with a baseball bat, and once Mark was no longer conscious, they placed him back in the car and pushed it over the cliff. He then roughed Aurora up a bit to make it look like she had been thrown from the car. Aurora had told her stepmother that Mark's last words were, Please don't hurt my wife. Aurora said this, and then minutes later gloated about how rich she was now. The prosecution said that Peter was in Corsica at the same time as Aurora and Mark. However, they couldn't definitively prove that he was there at that time. Let's not forget that Peter's wife Ursula, in addition to the money she had found, she'd also found false identity documents. It was probable that he had traveled to Corsica using those fake IDs. Peter claimed to be unable to remember where he was in May of 1995, so he had no alibi to cover him during the time of Mark's so-called accident. Peter would testify in his own defense, claiming that he and Aurora broke up in 1994, before Mark was in the picture. He said they only rekindled their relationship after Mark's death. Aurora had reached out to him because she told him that she had just received a large amount of money, and she didn't know how to manage it. He told her at that time to put the money in Luxembourg, and the only reason his name was on the account was because she thought he was an honest man. You can rightfully imagine the laughter coming from the courtroom after that statement was made. Investigators were able to figure out that Peter had been in the south of France six months before Mark's accident. He had sent postcards to his family, specifically once sent from Corsica. Investigators believed that he had gone on a recon mission to try and find the best spot for the accident to occur. If this was true, this would have been before Mark and Aurora were even married. Peter's brother would testify that Aurora came to a family dinner during the time that she and Mark were married. Peter would claim that his brother was mistaken. The jury would deliberate for six hours before returning two guilty verdicts. Aurora Martin was given a 15-year sentence for her role in her husband's murder, and Peter received 20 years after being labeled the mastermind of the killing. Be prepared to be disappointed. Aurora would be released in 2007 after serving only six years. Peter was released one year later, having served only seven of his 20 years. Their combined jail time was less than either of the murderer's sentences. Peter and Aurora were both released at the age of 33, and upon condition of release, they were not allowed to have contact with each other. Once free, they expressed a desire to get married. The diabolical lovers allegedly got back together, and their current location is unknown. And that is all the information I have for you on this case. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much to everyone who spread the word about Twisted Travel and True Crime through your ratings, reviews, and on social media. Your involvement helps this podcast grow, and I'm so grateful for it. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, I'd like to wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. This week's distasteful outtake. Most people would slam on the brakes, too, but unlike my underwear after eating Taco Bell, there were no skid marks. <laughs>